Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, September 8th, 2019. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In July and August of 1991, I had the privilege of participating in a four-week Holocaust Study Awareness Program. Uh, I had just finished my first year of seminary at Drew Theological School in Madison, New Jersey. I was eager to learn whatever I could about this significant event in human history. Our group had 20 uh, young adults, 10 from the United States, 10 from Germany. Of uh, the Americans, five of us were Christians, five of us were Jews. Of the East German, or of the Germans, and this was the summer right after the Berlin Wall had fallen down, Five were East Germans and five were former West Germans. And we gathered together for four weeks. We spent two weeks together in the New York and Philadelphia uh, areas. And then two weeks in Germany and Poland, mostly in Berlin. But the part that was really powerful was when we had a chance to travel to Poland to, to visit the concentration camps of Auschwitz and Birkenau. We took a nine-hour bus ride from Berlin to the small town of Oswiecim in southern Poland. And although originally there were over 40 locations in and around Osvincium that Auschwitz uh, extended to, there really were two significant camps. Auschwitz one, where the main administration uh, was held, and Birkenau, sometimes referred to as Auschwitz II. um, This was a much larger of the two facilities, and this was primarily the work camp area. Well, above the entrance to Auschwitz I is the infamous sign written in German, Arbach macht frei, which means work makes free. And it's ironic, of course, because very few who came through those gates never ever made it out alive. Of the 1.3 million people that moved through that gate of Auschwitz, 1.1 million died there. It's a horrific event uh, in world history. And for me to have been able to be inside the actual gas chambers and to see the crematoriums firsthand, to know the atrocities that had taken place there, including the murder of men, women, and children, not to mention how they then burned the bodies, uh, which caused ash to cover the entire town of Svincium and for miles around. It was unspeakable. As we begin today's installment of our captivated series on the book of Daniel, we come to one of the more famous stories in Daniel. It's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And if you've ever been to Sunday school or vacation Bible school, undoubtedly you have heard that story retold over and over again. But I hope that our familiarity with the story will not get in the way of the horrific actions that were taking place. How a ruthless, tyrannical leader intentionally burned alive three young people simply because they went against his decrees. It's a sobering story that we have today, and I want to get right into it. The story comes from the third chapter of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, and I've mentioned this each week, but the setting for the book of Daniel uh, is a period of Jewish history known as the Babylonian Exile. This occurred beginning around the 6th century BCE when King Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian superpower rolled into Jerusalem, destroyed uh, the city, destroyed the temple, and then took uh, many of the best and the brightest, the young people who were the future of their city and their nation, took them 700 miles away into captivity in Babylon. 
And all of the stories from the book of Daniel are set in that period. But scholars believe Daniel wasn't actually an eyewitness, first-hand account of what happened in the exile. In fact, they say most likely it was written hundreds of years later at a different time in Jewish history, uh, a time known as the Diaspora, when many Jews had left Israel and were now living around the Mediterranean region and beyond. And the themes of Daniel are targeted to a community that was largely living in foreign lands, and, and wrestling with the questions of what it meant to be faithful in the midst of this unfamiliar place with the challenges, the threats, and the hardships that you experience when you're no longer home. Now, one of the first things you'll notice in chapter 3 is our, our main hero of the book, Daniel, makes no appearance at all. In fact, we focus on his three closest friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Hence, fourth, though, they will be known by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, we should keep in mind that the author wasn't really concerned about telling a consistent story between all of the chapters, right? As we go through, it may seem to you like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this the same King Nebuchadnezzar that just promoted Daniel and said how great his his God was? How how did he forget what happened in chapter 2 or chapter 1? That's not the main author's focus of having this consistent story. The author is trying to tell a story about God and what it means uh, to be faithful in difficult times. So I invite you to open your Bibles, grab the Red Pew Bible, take out your smartphone and open your Bible app as we follow along in this amazing story from Daniel chapter 3. Beginning at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue whose height was 60 cubits and whose width was 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. If you were last week, uh, you know that we had a story about a dream about a large statue. This week we have a real one, or at least uh, one that's purported to be real. The ancient writer Herodotus speaks of a great golden statue of Zeus that was in Babylon. Uh, and much earlier, the Assyrian king uh, Ashurnasirapal uh, bragged about a great stone statue to the sun god uh, Nineb in that same area. Both literature and archaeology attest to gigantic sculptures that guarded the entrance of the famous Hanging Gardens of Babylon. So creating a large statue would not have been out of the ordinary, especially not in Babylon during that time. Now, what we don't know is whether the statue was of the king, Nebuchadnezzar himself, or some other entity. In the apocryphal book of Judith, They mention a time when Nebuchadnezzar sent his officers to destroy all the local sanctuaries in all of the countries uh, in his kingdom. And Judah 3 verse 8 says this, So that all the nations should worship Nebuchadnezzar only, and all their tongues and tribes should call on him as God. So is that what's happening here? Is this a big statement of Nebuchadnezzar? We don't really know. There's not a lot of details in the story itself. Interestingly enough, though, the Aramaic word for statue is also the word for idol. Uh, Keep that in mind as we go through the story. And I believe you may remember the Ten Commandments that have something to say about idols and the place that they should or should not have in your life. Well, let's let's talk about size now. And I don't know how many of you are up on your biblical measurements, but a cubit was the length uh, from a person's elbow to fingertip. And granted, some of us are a little bit taller, a little bit smaller than others, but in general, that would be about 18 inches, a cubit. So, uh, 60 cubits high by 6 cubits wide would be a uh, 90-foot-tall statue 
by nine feet wide. Now, for readers in the Persia period, this height would have made it the largest statue in the Mediterranean and Near East region at that time. But scholars say it's obvious that these proportions are all wrong. I mean, remember, uh, I've said this more than once. In the Bible, when you see numbers, they mean more than just the number. They often have symbolic meaning. And symbolically, 60 cubits was the exact height of the temple in Jerusalem. Interesting, right? As they're reading this for the first time, they know the height of their temple where they bow down. Now this king is saying, no, 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 this is the new 60-cubit height entity that you should bow down before. Biblical scholar Rick Lowry in his Storyteller's Companion to the Bible commentary writes this, 90 feet high and only 9 feet wide, the statue would have been fundamentally unstable and structurally unsound. It's hard to imagine how it could have stood upright in the first place, but it's certain that such a thin statue would snap in two by its own weight or else would topple in the first brisk wind. So do not bring it to the Antelope Valley. There's no way it will survive, right? So what we discover from the very first verse of chapter 3 in the book of Daniel is the author's use of exaggeration and extremes. And we're going to find this over and over again. Why tell it one way when you can exaggerate it for effect? Verse 2. King Nebuchadnezzar then sent for the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to assemble and come to the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, we know from the first two chapters of Daniel that King Nebi likes to have a plethora of staff members on hand. Whenever anything official needs to take place, he calls all the groups together, and chapter 3 is no exception. It's also another example of the extremes that the storyteller goes to, right? And and repetition, you'll find in storytelling, is a technique that becomes almost comedic in Daniel chapter 3. In fact, in the very next verse, the author repeats all the seven groups mentioned, plus all the officials and the provinces as they've gathered together as the king asks. Verse 4. When they were standing before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, an entire musical ensemble, you are to fall down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Remember that part about extremes? Uh, It also works for musical instruments too, right? The king brings in a band with six specific instruments mentioned, plus the entire musical ensemble. And interesting, scholars say that except for the word, the term horn, none of the other instruments can be found in any other part of the Hebrew scriptures. And three of those terms were borrowed from the Persian and Greek languages, which they say is another indication that this wasn't written at that time, but came hundreds of years later when those cultures were more in the norm. So let's talk about the punishment for a moment. Rick Lowry mentions that although the Babylonians were ruthlessly brutal in their treatment of enemies, there's actually no historical evidence that they ever executed people for, uh, shall we say, religious noncompliance. The first recorded systematic persecution of Jews for religious noncompliance comes in the 2nd century BCE, 400 years later, under Antiochus IV's reign. And you may uh, know about the apocryphal book, the the Maccabees, and, and that revolt, and what eventually came to be the Hanukkah celebration. All that comes around Antiochus IV's reign. 
Well, you also may be surprised to know that death by burning is actually prescribed early on in the Old Testament for specific offenses, including situations in Genesis 38 and Joshua 7. So, in our verse 7 of Daniel chapter 3, the king wants to test out this new decree, and the author once again names all of those six musical instruments, and then he says, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the fall down music plays, people literally get down right then and there to the music, and then comes the drama. Verse 8. Accordingly, at the same time, Chaldeans came forward and denounced the Jews. Now, if you've been in this series, you know every week the Chaldeans appear. Uh, the Chaldeans were a group of the king's officials who were uh, religious prognosticators. They uh, studied astrology. They loved to give the king advice about dreams and the future and what may happen. And here, though, for the very first time in the book of Daniel, they carry a sinister tone about them. After greeting the king with their usual flattery, they ask about the new decree, complete with mentioning all of the six musical instruments that the king has mentioned and the narrator has mentioned, and the punishment for refusing to comply. And then we get to verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These pay no heed to you, O king. They do not serve your gods. They do not worship the golden statue that you have set up. So this is the equivalent of bringing a, a formal criminal charges against our three heroes. And technically, they're not really lying or making things up because, indeed, they have not been bowing down to the statue. They know that one of the key tenets of Judaism is to worship no idols and, and not to bow down before any one or anything that is not God. But they're trying clearly to get these three young men in trouble, right? You could make a case of uh, malicious intent here by the Chaldeans. But the three men have not been disloyal to the king at all. In fact, he's promoted them over the first two chapters because of their loyalty and because of the quality of their work. So maybe there's more than just a little bit of jealousy going on here. Maybe there's also some racism that's in the story. In fact, it's quite telling that in verse 8, when it says the Chaldeans came forward and denounced the Jews, that phrase literally in Aramaic is translated, they ate pieces of the Jews. I mean, which they didn't literally do, but it means that's what they were wanting, to, to chew them up and spit them out. Definitely malicious intent. Verse 13. The Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in. So they brought in those men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and do not worship the golden statue that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of... Are you ready? The horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, and the entire musical ensemble to fall down and worship the statue that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that will deliver you from my hands? So something has gone awry with the king's stop, drop, and worship campaign. We have some non-compliance here. And he says, I will give you one more chance. Bow down or face my wrath. And the amazing way they respond becomes the heart of the story. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand... O king, let him deliver us. 
But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Now, the first thing I should share with you is that just about every scholar I read this past week said that this passage here in Aramaic, the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is very hard to translate. The, today's English version reads, Your Majesty, we will not try to defend ourselves. Another translation says, We do not need to answer you in this matter. Uh, the three young Hebrew men living in captivity don't feel like they have to justify themselves before the king. They don't try to explain, Oh, well, you know, we aren't allowed to do that where we come from. And then very calmly, they say something that is revolutionary. They say they believe that God can deliver them from the fiery sentence, but they don't know if God will. Literally, the Aramaic bridges the two sections of their response with the words, but even if he doesn't. So let that sink in for a moment. They said, we believe that God can save us and deliver us from your hands, but even if he doesn't, respectfully, O king, we will not bow down to your statue. It's an amazing testimony that they're making there, right? Why does God let bad things happen to good people? I mean, that's a question that humans have been asking since the beginning of time, right? We could list a number of horrific events in human history where we humans have done horrible things to each other. Auschwitz, Hiroshima, Biafra, Cambodia, Yugoslavia, South Africa, Rwanda, the list can go on and on. And surely people of faith prayed to God during those times of tragedy, right? So why didn't God swoop down and save them? It's a great question, one that I don't think will ever be answered until we stand before the throne of God Almighty. Or we may ask, why doesn't God heal everyone who has cancer? Why doesn't God miraculously provide food, shelter, and clean water, the basic necessities of life to every person in this world? I mean, most of us believe that God can do these things, that God has the power to do these things, and yet, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were so grounded in their faith and who they knew who God had called them to be that they could say without a doubt in their minds, we believe that God can rescue us from the fiery furnace, but even if he doesn't, even if we die at the hands of imperial bullies, even if the cancer takes our body, even if somebody we love is tragically killed in an accident, even if I lose my job, even if my spouse asks for a divorce, But even if he doesn't, said Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we still will not worship your gods and your statue. We will still keep our faith. You see, no matter what happens now, the three young men have already won. The king was trying to coerce a response. He was trying to force adherence. But in their defiance, the king is powerless to control them. He's already defeated no matter what takes place next. Their spirits, unshakable through their faith in God, have clung to the truth and they will not be silenced. Verse 19. The Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face was distorted. He ordered the furnace heated up seven times more than was customary and ordered some of the strongest guards in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the furnace 
a blazing fire. I think it's too bad we don't have uh, pictures of what his face looked like back in the day when uh, they politely declined to bow down. But remember how I said this chapter is all about excesses and extremes, right? Well, um, here's another perfect example. How hot does a furnace have to be in order for it to burn up whatever comes in? I'm thinking the normal temperature is fine, right? No, seven times hotter is what the king says. Uh, And remember how I said numbers in the Bible often mean more than just numbers? Seven, perfection. Well, case in point, verse 21. So the men were bound, still wearing their tunics, their trousers, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Because the king's command was urgent and the furnace was so overheated, the raging flames killed the men who lifted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the furnace of blazing fire. So a moment of silence for the poor guards that had to uh, throw them into the furnace that they themselves got burned up in the process. I mean, I bet they were stoked, no pun intended, that the king had uh, ratcheted it up that hot, right? By the way, the Aramaic word for bound that's used here is also used in speaking about when they prepare animals for sacrifice. They would bind them and place them on the altar at the temple in Jerusalem before they would be burned. Sharon Pace, in her Smith and Helwes commentary on Daniel, makes an interesting observation. She says there's only one word used to describe the actions of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and that was they fell down. Right? They fell down into the furnace. The verb can also be used to talk about dying in battle, to fall in battle. But what's most interesting to me, it was also the same verb that King Nebuchadnezzar used when insisting that everyone comply with his musical statue moment. Remember that? Back in verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. It's quite a striking contrast, if you think about it, that these three men of faith have refused to fall down, to bow down before this idol, and instead are willing to fall down into a blazing furnace and still remain faithful to God. It's, it's, it's using the king's words against him in a way he never expected. And the story doesn't end with them falling down to their fiery death. Verse 24 Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up quickly. He said to his counselors, "Uh, Was it not three men that we threw bound into the fire? They answered the king, True, O king. And he replied, "Uh, But I see four men unbound, walking in the middle of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a god. Some Christians over the years have claimed that the mysterious fourth figure must have been Jesus. There's actually nothing in the text that supports that interpretation, Though the book of Job opens with a heavenly council and refers to those people as sons of God surrounding the throne. Obviously, those are angels. And whatever or whomever this figure in Daniel is, it represents God. God's presence with these three young men. And no longer are they bound like sacrificial animals. They have been freed. And the king does a 180-degree turn. He has the heat shut off immediately. He opens the furnace doors, calls out to the guys, labels them as servants of the Most High God, and we get the second half of verse 26. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. 
The hair of their heads was not singed. Their tunics were not harmed. Not even the smell of fire came from them. Well, how do you do now? And those of us that have had experience of, of wildfires in Southern California know that if you get anywhere near a fire, your clothes, your house, everything is going to smell like smoke, right? Not the case here. And it may be just a minor point, but I think it's significant that um, the angel didn't turn off the flames in the fire. Who was it that actually shut down the heat? It was Nebuchadnezzar, right? And I think sometimes we pray for God to, to, to extinguish the fires that we're experiencing in our lives or, or that we've been thrust into. But what was the gift that God gave Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? He gave them his presence with them in the midst of the fire. And sometimes we may forget that can be God's greatest gift for us. That when we're going through the midst of fiery ordeals in our life, God walks with us. Isaiah 43 says, But now thus saith the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God. Isaiah says, when you pass through the waters and the rivers, when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. God doesn't say, I promise you, you'll never have to go through deep rivers. You'll never have any fires in your life. Just stick with me and it's going to be fine. No, the opposite. Everybody goes to that because that's just life. When you go through that, God says, I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And I know some of us here today have been going through some very difficult fires in life. And of course, we want to pray for the fires to stop, for God to take away the suffering and the, and the struggles, that, that we might not have to go through the road that it seems like God is taking us through. But that's not how Daniel 3 plays out, is it? That God promises instead to be with us in the midst of our flames. And, and maybe the biggest takeaway for some of us today is to be able to say with confidence what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. And that is, I believe with all my heart that God can rescue me from whatever it is I'm going through, but even if he doesn't, I will not give up my faith, nor will I announce my relationship to God. That could be a huge step of faith in your own journey. So how does our story end? Well, the three come out. The king, again, goes to extremes. Does he stop the uh, stop, drop, and worship thing? No. He just says, uh, now everybody gets to worship the Hebrew God as well. And if anybody talks stink about that God, then they shall be torn limb from limb, their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Thus ends chapter 3. Once again, the king going to extremes. But this is the last we hear about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. It's a fascinating story, isn't it? What message is God speaking to you throughout this chapter? And and amongst the calls to faithfulness and the steadfast commitment to God, I want to offer up another underlying message that may not be so apparent, but I think needs to be said nonetheless. So in addition to what we've already talked about, 
I started by speaking about the Holocaust, and few of us argue that it's one of the most heinous events in human history. It wasn't the first, it won't be the last, and maybe we won't ever have to go through another time when six million people will be slaughtered out of racism and xenophobia. But there are still moments today when people are marginalized, dehumanized, and dismissed. And I think what it means when we say we're inspired by Jesus to love, it means we're compelled to stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. Whether it's here in Palmdale, in the United States, or or in the world. Daniel 3 challenges us to be courageous in our faithfulness and to find those moments for great refusal. That we may have to go against those that are in power so that we might not be found indifferent in the face of injustice. May the Holy Spirit inspire us to see every single person in this world as part of God's loving, inclusive family. And one day, by the grace of God, as the Negro spiritual says, and as Dr. Martin Luther King sang so boldly, we shall overcome. And all God's people said, 